Hello and welcome to the second series of Help, I'm in my 20s, a podcast dedicated to career development, stories and inspiration hosted by me, Georgie Hobart-Smith. Today's guest is Alex Pavlovskis, Senior Consultant in the Sustainable Finance Team at Ernst & Young. This is an amazing talk with Alex and I could talk to her for hours, not just because COP26 has just been taking place, but because she's so knowledgeable and straight talking. There's so much to talk about from her career at small startups through to now being at Ernst & Young. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. So let's get started. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Help I'm in My 20s. How are you? Hi, Georgie. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really well, thank you. How are you doing? Good, thank you. We're still recording remotely and I love seeing your headset kind of in the video as we're talking. I think it's just like, oh, is this work? Is this play? Is it fun? I don't know. So um, yeah, it's definitely very nice to see your face as well and so first time in so long. Yeah, it's been, yeah, I, I mean, still shame to see it virtually, but hopefully <laughs> see you in person soon. But yeah, as you say, it's uh, become the norm, hasn't it, being <laughs> over the screen? Yeah, exactly. And then like go back into the office, it's still happening. I have to talk quite quietly into like my headphones at my desk sometimes if someone else is at home. It's not so good, but just getting used to it. Um, exactly. So, uh, you are currently a senior consultant sustainable finance team at EY, so Ernst & Young, right? And I think I met you, gosh, like six years ago when you were doing your master's, I think, and actually working outside London at that time. So would you be happy just to give a quick whistle-stop tour of your career to date and how you got into what you do and what it is that you actually do as well? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I guess I would keep it short, but, you know, the whole <laughs> career is definitely not a short one. So it I will start at the beginning. <laughs> start, yeah, so starting at the beginning, I uh, studied geology at Imperial College London. So moved down from Doncaster, from Yorkshire, where I'm from, and uh, started to study geology at, at Imperial. And that was basically the reason I wanted to study geology was because I had a fascination with the environment, with kind of the outdoors and just always loved science. But I knew I wanted to be kind of more focused in science than just geography. Mm -hmm. So I ended up doing geology. A uh, slight anecdote to that was actually that I was on the train down to Imperial for the open day um, and I was going to look at an environmental studies program at Imperial when I clicked on the prospectus and found out that they no longer offered that course. So <laughs> I arrived at the open day, um, my plan had basically been bamboozled, but I spoke to uh, the program director at the time and she was like, oh, it's fine, just do geology, it's basically the same thing. Uh, for, for anyone who's not aware it's not the same thing so yeah. I found myself studying rocks for three years uh, which I, I grew to love uh, and the best thing about doing geology was being outside and, and um, the the lab work and the scientific side of it is not in a, a sterile white lab mm -hmm. it, it's outdoors in, in the mountains and I, I spent for my dissertation spent six weeks in the Pyrenees uh, creating a map of the Pyrenees so that was fantastic wow. um but typically, geology leads you into a career of either oil and gas or mining. They're the main places people go other than academics. I really did not want to go into oil and gas uh, because even though the, the topic on climate change back then was definitely much more nascent than it is now, I kind of knew that I didn't want to, to work in an industry that was fundamentally causing such issues for the planet, mm. especially since I'd wanted to study environmental studies in the first place. So <laughs> uh, my, my general idea was that I would go and uh, become an environmental manager for a mine. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. But okay. I found out after doing a lot of research that in order to do that, you basically need to work in a mine for you know, 20, 25 years. And then that's how you end up becoming the environmental manager. Right, um, okay. And it's, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's probably different now. Uh, obviously this was quite a while ago when I was uh, doing my undergrad, but that was the case. So I somehow ended up working at um, an environmental consultancy that basically what we did was land remediation so okay. an environmental consultant in in that respect um, and a land consultant would go to a site so usually a construction site or a potential construction site okay. 
and we would take samples of the soil and test it for contaminants and then we would come up with remediation plans so how would we get that soil back to a, a suitable level if it had heavy contaminants in it for example lots of our work was in London and mm. you wouldn't believe the amount of well you you probably would believe but the amount of rubbish that is just in the ground underneath us um really? in a place like London where yeah so it's the industrial revolution obviously created lots of um like lots more buildings than were there before but there's been people living in London for mm. thousands of years and 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 so there's so many layers of all sorts of different stuff under there most of which is man-made and and has in a way affected the the geology and the, and the ground underneath us so when building um when building something you need to be concerned about the buildup of gas or the contamination of water and, and the, these sorts of things okay. so I did that but largely what that job entailed was as I say the visiting construction sites mm. um, and I spent a really large portion of my time um actually at the Olympic Park in Stratford mm-hmm. uh, basically sat next to a, a drill a drilling rig and a digger and putting little bits of soil into pots and sending it off to labs for chemical analysis which was not the glamorous <laughs> life that I, I wish to lead um, and yeah I mean as a as a, like a young woman working on a construction site mm. you can imagine the the difficulties that that I faced um, just mm the the relationship between the the construction site workers that were doing the drilling and myself as an engineer stroke consultant uh I was fundamentally in charge of them and so I faced quite a lot of obstacles just because you know grown men don't want to listen to young women Mm. uh, tell them what to do if it was about listening were they just were they sort of just kind of listen but not take it on board or like not actually do what you'd maybe recommended is that yeah, they they would question my yeah question my recommendations, and if we had set out a plan um, that it when we had decided that we were going to do the work for that day, we would set out a plan of what we were going to do. Uh, mm-hmm. But if that was to ever change, and I was to provide advice as to why no, we needed to stick to a certain way, they just generally were not mm-hmm. but interested in listening to what I had to say. So it was yeah very mm-hmm. difficult, but it taught me lots of lessons um, on how to manage people and. Um, how to just yeah deal deal with difficult situations but it meant that I didn't really want to stay in that career another side of the coin was that being in in site remediation fundamentally what you're doing is cleaning up other people's mess so you're cleaning up the mess of previous generations and the effect that they have had on on the built and living environment which is it is kind of it's a bit depressing in a way because you see the damage that everyone you see the damage that has, has been done and, and then you think about what we're all doing in, in the day-to-day and you, you think about the amount of waste that we produce mm. and the plastic pollution and, and the chemical contaminants that uh, we pump out into the world just by existing and living in the society that we do and yeah it was it was quite depressing and I just thought mm. right I, I really don't want to this doesn't I don't want this to be my day-to-day so that's when I decided to go back to university to study climate change management and finance at Imperial again um, but this time at the business school so chose to do that program because what I the reason for it basically was that I saw two different routes to go down in terms of actually pushing for change and that was either policy uh, and working mm-hmm. in politics and, and pushing that agenda or business and finance. Yeah. I had done a course in my undergrad, uh, we were allowed to do elective course on, on corporate finance and I did that and found it really interesting and thought, you know what, maybe actually moving capital into in the direction of sustainable business and um, solutions for climate change and the environment is actually the way to go. Mm. So decided to do that program and thought it was a really good mix between pure climate change and sustainability studies which was supported by imperial which is a university that only studies sciences but mm. then also the business management and finance side that was brought by the business school so that was a fantastic course i had the time of my life and yeah as you say i think that was when we met um mm. when i was playing lacrosse at central and yeah it just it was fantastic it, it was um really really well taught what well constructed and provided such a broad range of students so we had people with 
um, variety of backgrounds, people that were coming in from industry or people like myself just mm-hmm. with a year or two experience and then people straight out of university as well. Um, but it was a, a very broad range and very like diverse set mm-hmm. of individuals. Um, so I had a fantastic time there and met some really great people. And yeah, throughout that course, I realized that I was right about my hunch of going into finance and, and, and business and, and taking that route. So when it came to the end of the year, you had to do a either an internship or a consultancy project. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to be able to secure myself an internship with um, a company, Arabesque, which is where uh, I spent three years after that mm-hmm. and so I joined them as an intern and I was really excited by the the prospect of uh, their, their solutions and what they were doing and, and the data and what's what's termed ESG so environmental social and governance data space um, and they were a kind of startup at the time now they're, they're more of a scale-up but uh, yeah so I joined them as an intern and, and moved through the different teams there and really think I found my place in terms of uh, where I where I was meant to be with the intersection between mm. environmental environmental sustainability climate change and finance and, and business Brilliant. so yeah <laughs> spent spent three years at the company and then more recently so it was in during COVID actually so June 20 yeah June 2021 that's what year we're in now uh I made the move to EY so largely my decision to move from a smaller company like Arabesque so a a scale-up sized company to to EY was that I recognized that I wanted to just get a broader broader exposure to the industry which being not being in-house meant that I could that I could receive that so Mm. being at one of the big four and being at a consultancy means that you get exposure to some of the world's largest um, clients across financial services so all of the largest banks Mm. asset managers and insurance houses work with the the big four so that was my main reason for moving and I think as many people have found um, during COVID people became dissatisfied with with their jobs and their lives partially because of of COVID and the restrictions it placed on us but Mm -hmm. it was just time for a change so I found myself in the EY team and have been there since June. Since June and we were talking I guess beforehand that you started at a time where you could only work from home so having to completely join a new and quite a large company like EY in a time where you can't physically meet people how did you find that yeah it was it was tough um I mean before before joining I, I received my laptop the, the week before so I was like okay this this is great this is off to a good a good start mm-hmm. um but then on the first day you kind of you open your laptop you you get your email address and you see the you've got an inbox full of emails but <laughs> then you think oh where, where do I go now like who do I speak to how do I meet the team and mm. I actually had a, a weird situation where I joined on um the week of a bank holiday so I think it was the yeah the, the final May bank holiday was on the Monday mm. so I missed the team meeting on Monday because it started on a Tuesday uh and yeah just was sat there sort of twiddling my thumbs thinking gosh like <laughs> how do I even <laughs> get started because you being uh, working from home during COVID when you had worked at a company for you know two and a half two two and a half years as I had with Arabesque it didn't feel that that much of a big deal because mm. I had all the the personal relations with everyone in the team many of the my colleagues at Arabesque some of my closest friends so mm. speaking over you know over teams and and communicating virtually wasn't a challenge but mm. meeting new people it, it was really 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 tough and yeah it's hard to to make those connections but it's also hard to ask those silly questions that you need to ask when you're new somewhere so mm. just rolling over your your chair next to someone in an off in the office is by far the the biggest thing that I missed because you, yeah you have the the sort of anxiety of the fact you're asking a silly question but you're also you feel like you're bothering someone and mm. it yeah it's it's not easy um but now we're, we're going back into the office much more which is mm. which is great um so good yeah I think I mean even I've worked at my company now for five and a half years 
and working from home really easy I did it a bit before COVID I actually really like working from home but what you do really miss is when you're for example instead of just clicking into a meeting you might walk to a meeting with someone else mm-hmm. and you can have a chat you can see what else they're working on and just get to know them personally and mm-hmm. in the office you just overhear so much more as well and yeah. people yeah. because they see you they're like oh actually it'd be really good if you could be involved with this Whereas when you're on a screen, you're not necessarily actually around all these people to then help you and to include you uh, mm-hmm. in the meetings that you might not always have to be at all of them, but you're probably missing some essentials by not being front of mind for people Lately. as well. Yeah, so that's Did- good. And now you're going back in again. Yeah, yeah, we, we really are. And I mean, one of the points I was just going to make there was the thing that I have found, and I, I still see this as a slight challenge, even though we're now going back into the office, is that I it's kind of the Zoom <laughs> Zoom fatigue. I, yeah. It's awful to use Zoom as, a, as the platform that gets <laughs> um, branded with that, that phrase. But uh, the fact that now I find myself having back-to-back meetings and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a half an hour meeting here and then another one there. And you know, you can be sat down for, if you've got six meetings back to back, you're sat down for three hours straight. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like when we were in the office, we had less meetings because of those interactions okay. you just mentioned, you mm-hmm. know, just being able to say, pop over to someone or, or on the way to a meeting say, oh yeah, you're the person to help me with this. Whereas now we have to have a meeting to do that because mm-hmm. it's more difficult. And the, the part I mentioned about just sending that message to someone to ask them a small question, you feel like you always need to try and, mm-hmm. and have a call with them. So I find it, it, it is difficult. And now because we've, we're doing what we're terming hybrid working, mm-hmm. right? So working yeah. from home and the office, um, it's difficult because people, some people are still at home and some people are coming in and um, you can end up going into the office and spending your entire day just sat at your desk on a call, which is what you would have been doing at home anyway. So uh, getting that balance is, is interesting. And I'm, I am interested to see how the, uh, the culture will change around having calls and in-person meetings and mm. whether the hybrid model will stick or whether it'll become more of a maybe still hybrid working from home and in the office, but mandatory days where everyone mm. is in so that you can avoid those those back-to-back calls all day. Mm. Yeah, so within our departments at the moment, so t- typically I would say the Come Here Workflow is being quite stringent on some of these things and mm-hmm. quite prescriptive. And what they're trying this new approach, which I think is great, whereby actually if you are going to be on calls all day, don't come in there's actually no point to you being in you're not gaining anything by collaborating you might have that odd conversation but actually is if you're in the office you should be there to collaborate with other people who are also there so you can kind of coordinate that so we've been like really focusing on our diaries and making sure that if I am going to have lots of calls then that's not the day I'm going to be in I'm going to be in on a day when I have a workshop or I have a team meeting or something like that so and that's been really nice some other teams have prescriptive days but maybe with you with client lots of clients mm-hmm. got lots of stakeholders so actually if we need to meet up with more stakeholders it's probably better just to go in on w- one of their days rather than us having our own prescribed day potentially exactly. yeah so I think that's amazing I mean do you feel like you're having more of an impact on the corporate side in terms of sustainability compared to when you were sat by a digger having an impact on that particular site do you feel like because I I can imagine actually especially going into the pollution and everything underneath all the ground and everything um it can feel very overwhelming and so now and you want to be having a bigger impact because you're like well what can my tiny thing do which of course if everyone does tiny things it will make a difference but how can that help more and then I was wondering if in sustainable finance then actually do you feel like you're having a greater impact on more people it's such a good question and it's something I was just talking to my friend about this morning when when she came over uh, for coffee I I don't I don't know which I feel like I've had more of an impact because when you're there on the ground you know actively doing doing something Mm. you're doing something that's actually going to result in this small however small it may be plot of land Mm. uh becoming uh, of a better quality environmentally or sustainability wise Mm. so 
you're having a real direct impact. Whereas from the sustainable finance standpoint, what I do on a day-to-day basis is quite removed from the actual the actual impact. So being a consultant, as everyone um, takes the mick out of us for, most of what we do is make PowerPoint slides. So <laughs> yeah, when I, I'm sat there um, pouring over a PowerPoint slide, trying to make sure all the icons align, I do sit and wonder, <laughs> is this really the most impact I could be having? But uh, as I mentioned previously, we have access to some of the, the biggest clients and, and the biggest mm. banks, um, asset managers, insurance houses. So making them more sustainable, making them more aligned with uh, climate goals and, and that sort of thing is definitely impactful. Um, and it, it's, it's, yeah, it's recognizing that and taking a step back and realizing that. Mm. The one thing that I noticed from both jobs is that it is overwhelming the kind of the, the challenge that we have in front of us so when when it was doing the land remediation it was just okay so I am looking at the the, uh, the earth and the ground that has been polluted and mm. like what has changed since when we did this before to stop this happening and mm. yes we have more environmental policy there are more regulations in place but you still see the incredibly vast quantities of plastic that we all use and and chemicals mm. and the rest of it uh, and you just think, well, how is this not just continuing to happen? And it is. And then from the sustainable finance standpoint, you look at net zero and, and the climate targets and the, the goals that, you know, at a global um, and, and country level to at a corporate level, we're all trying to meet. Mm. And it's a massive challenge. So it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where I feel like I am, I'm in the right career and I'm, I'm in the right industry for me and, and I mm-hmm. want to be making a change, but seeing that impact and then also not getting stressed and um, overwhelmed by the, the ginormous tasks that we have in front of us is, is challenging. <laughs> mm, yeah, I mean, I've definitely felt that when you're like, I'm just so small, how can I make a difference? Yeah. Obviously, if everyone thinks that way and does nothing, then it gets worse. If even quite a lot of people but not everyone does a little bit then that's still quite a lot as well I I don't know whether it's enough but it's something and I mean we're talking actually the week before the UK budget is going to be announced so that's this coming week and then the week after is COP26 in Glasgow has that been do those things impact your sort of focuses in your work and your priorities? Absolutely yeah yeah uh the (laughs) the amount of um what's the word the amount of buzz that is around cop mm. is, is unbelievable so from good buzz? from any yeah yeah okay. it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a good buzz this cop is a, a really big one because the the ndc's the i think it's national determined mm. contributions uh are being reset so it's since the 2015 uh cop uh so the reset every five years and mm. so the, the goals that each country is going to set are, are going to come out of, of this COP. And so it's really important to, it's a, it's a really important one for our um, pathway to 2030 and 2050 in terms of the um, meeting the Paris goals. So I think there's a lot of uh, anxiety and there's a lot of um, stress about it, but it's, it, there's also a lot of buzz because people are very uh, focused on, on actually the challenge ahead and, and making a difference in terms of my day-to-day and how it impacts kind of clients mm. it, it's a lot of the action around cop is at the the chief executive level and the, and the csr level so uh, for ey for example um not there's only one person from my team that it, it, at the lower level so it's going so yeah. okay for us it, it's not um that big a deal but it, it obviously will have impacts on the work that we do down the line and, and the you're going to be set. you're going to be really keeping an eye on what's what decisions are made and then mm-hmm. really I mean we should actually talk more I mean I could talk about all of this with you for so long but we should probably talk about actually what you do on a day-to-day level what your job yeah. actually is but I have assumed that you will have to almost explain to your clients what has been decided and actually what that means for them and what impact that could have is that right yes yes I know so (laughs) sounds um, like it's wrong (laughs) it will have a a trickle down effect so the decisions that are made at COP are really kind of at the global and and national level Uh, and so 
they will have an impact on the policies and regulations that are in place in each jurisdiction. So largely what is affecting my clients at the moment is um, all of the EU regulation and the UK regulation that has just been announced by the Treasury last week. So the EU version of it is the SFDR, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, Mm -hmm. and the UK version of it is the Sustainable Disclosure Regulation, so the SDR. Mm -hmm. Uh, So obviously we have to have our own separate one now we're not part of Europe but largely what they're trying to achieve is the same so it's just to increase uh, disclosure and regulations in the financial markets surrounding um, ESG so environmental social and governance data to ensure that these externalities what I mean by that is the impact of a corporation or a, a financial services firm on the environment are considered within their products and services and their marketing as well so mm. thinking about greenwashing um it's a mm. it's a word that everyone kind of knows now and and you think about it in terms of um companies claiming that they're they're doing something that's much more green or much more sustainable than it actually is uh, but of course for finance this is really really important because there's fiduciary duty and there's massive amounts of regulation on, on this um in in all of the markets so uh it has a a really large impact on on that and sfdr is trying to combat greenwashing and ensure that Mm. you know a product is what it says it is on the tin whether the product is a new sustainable bottle of shampoo or whether it's a financial product okay so i mean in your words like how would you describe sustainable finance or maybe in view of what you do day to day how would you describe Mm -hmm. that so yeah so day-to-day is probably an easy way to tackle it so Mm. the finance part of it is that my clients all operate within uh, the financial markets so the clients that we serve are banks such Mm -hmm. as kind of high street banks but also private banks and investment banks um, and then asset managers so they are managing the money um, the asset and the asset owners and and the pension funds so they're managing all of our money when we pay it into a pension pot Mm. so that's the finance side of it and then the sustainability side of it is how are these financial institutions that create products actually incorporating sustainability into their decisions Mm -hmm. so whether that's from an insurance company considering the impacts of climate change on their assets so if we think about that what that means is that an insurance company might insure your house and typically when anyone gets house insurance they think about flood risk so it's you know what is the the likelihood and um severity of that risk so mm. if you're on a floodplain the, the likelihood likelihood is quite high uh, mm. and, and the severity of the risk would be kind of what are the financial losses that would occur if you were to if there was a flood and, and you were to um lose lose your house in the worst case Mm -hmm. or just um sustain severe damage to the house but then you also have um the investment houses and how they're considering sustainability so typically uh in in finance you will make investment decisions based on data and certain conclusions you believe to be true Mm -hmm. so you will look at the way you think the market is moving so whether that is um looking at commodities so things like gold or oil or other um, natural assets and, and how their uh, their prices might be moving and then you'll make an investment decision on based on that in order to make money in the simplest term mm-hmm. so considering then ESG uh, metrics so environment social and governance metrics basically means uh, thinking about how they might impact those things so commodities is probably not the best example but if you look at the public equity uh, public equity market so what that means is investing in corporations that are listed on a stock exchange so taking the example of apple because that's mm-hmm. the one everyone always uses um yeah. so apple is a publicly listed entity that has shares on the stock exchange meaning that an investor can invest and, and buy mm-hmm. shares in that company and the prices of that go up and down and then you make money from it mm-hmm. so when we're thinking about incorporating esg metrics we look at okay what are the what is that company doing for the environment for social um whether it's social equality or just improving the lives of, of people and then and governance and and how um that company is governed and and the reason that these things are important is because 
well, I mean, I think they're important because <laughs> that's what I do, but uh, they can really affect the prices of, of companies and, and their shares. So all you have to look at is any of the companies that have undergone scandals recently. So Volkswagen is always the one that's kind of raised in terms of the emissions scandal with oh, yeah. their vehicles where they um, falsified the emissions ratings of their cars. Uh, and that had a that obviously was um, environmental in nature because it was relating to emissions, mm. but fundamentally that was kind of a, a governance issue. Mm. So they were lying about it and, and it meant that, that the price of that, um, com- that their shares went down. Mm. Um, and so what ESG is doing is saying that, you know, there's more to consider when making an investment decision than just the pure financial side of things. So mm. these environmental, social and governance factors impact how much something is worth. And the whole industry is growing so much because of things like like COP and, and just the, the climate change agenda is becoming so much more um, apparent and, and so much more important for everyone that it's going to impact um, the prices of, of, of companies mm. and more and more and more. So that's basically what I do. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's really helpful. Hopefully I think, that explains it. I think also, like, obviously I work in consumer understanding, market research, <laughs> so not on the finance side, but the consumer side. And I mean, everything's related, obviously, but we're just seeing so much more how sustainable brand values are what customers mm-hmm. are for. It's one of the top things alongside, you know, customer service in terms of why you might choose a brand or a product. And if that's more important to customers, that's where they're going to put their money. It's where maybe investors could get a better return, potentially, not always. Yep. But I think on top of that, if consumers are wanting to do that more, um, not only do they need to buy the things that actually do say that they're going to be more sustainable and hopefully not greenwashing, but also one area that I think is really interesting, and I don't think that many people will find it interesting, but your pension and actually, mm-hmm. you can actively move your pension to mm-hmm. or ask your current provider to move it into a more sustainable fund or an ESG fund mm-hmm. or whatever terminology they might be using. Um, yeah. And that's quite a direct way that Joe Public can potentially start to sway things in that way as well. Yeah, people's pensions are, as you say, the one of the biggest impacts that any person person can have on, on hmm. um, sustainability and on climate change because without knowing it your private pension could be funding fossil fuel companies could be funding companies that have terrible supply chains where they use um, non you know non-legal illegal labor and hmm. they have terrible standards and and so fundamentally your money is is funding that and just by switching to a fund that you hope if, if marketed as mm-hmm. um, thinking of greenwashing there but yeah if you move to a if you move to a fund that is managed sustainably and managed with the issue mm-hmm. considerations in mind then you have the peace of mind that your, your savings um, will be funding things that are actually helping and not making mm-hmm. the problem worse helping and potentially growing we, we I mean oil is an interesting one because I'm sure it's not going to be gone anytime soon but in the future you know generally governments are moving away from that and you know mm-hmm. take vehicles for example that's being moved away from oil as well for example into electricity I mean I do wonder with electric cars I know that they're really good and it reduces pollution city but you are almost putting some of the problem somewhere else because you've got to generate the electricity from something so as long as that mm-hmm. is you know renewable energy fine yeah if it's, exactly you know, just using I guess I don't really know what it would use but oil and gas then actually you're just displacing the problem um Mm -hmm. so I'm always quite skeptical but I do think they are a good thing and it stops pollution in your city I'm not you know completely against electric cars I just sometimes worry maybe it's a greenwashing thing but probably not it's more about knowledge around actually just because it's electric doesn't mean that no oil or gas is potentially used in that entire kind of product cycle um, yeah. But anyway, I, honestly, I could talk about so much of this stuff, but this is a career podcast. And so I'd like to go back to your master's. And yeah. how did you, I mean, you said you had a great time. And I, when you were talking about it, you've got new graduates, you've got people like you who'd worked a little bit in maybe something different. And then you've also got people who were, you know, doing it alongside their jobs, you know, to continue their learning. It sounds like it was really great for networking. 
Did you find mm-hmm. that at all? Yeah, it, it was fantastic. Um, not only because of the people that were on the course, but also the efforts that the program went to to connect you with people from industry, whether that was lecturers that you had um, mm. or whether it was people that had previously done the course. Uh, the lecturers that we had from the business school side of things, the reason they were so great is because a lot of them had had long careers in, in industry. So they had really practical examples of kind of how all this fitted into the, the working world beyond beyond just studying it in a classroom. And that's why I loved the, the blend of doing the climate change and the science side of it with, with business. Mm. Um, but I think more than anything, I think when I was a student, I didn't value networking as much mm. as maybe I should have. I, you're always told that it is really, really important to build and grow your network. And at the time, I, I wouldn't go to networking events because I always thought they were a bit awkward. And mm. I think, you know, when, when you're younger and earlier on in your career, you, it's difficult to talk about yourself and, and you're not very confident. And mm. I've definitely got better at that. But actually, the best network that I have from doing that course was the, the people I was on the course with. So mm-hmm. building the friendships and relationships with those people. And I now have um, friends that live across the world and are working in sustainable finance in every single kind of corner and element of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's the real network. Uh, it wasn't so much the, the lecturers were very insightful and they taught me a lot, but it was, it's the people that are now growing and growing up with me through their careers and that will be in very important positions very very soon if they're already not mm. I think that's one of the benefits already. of doing a master's um is that you know that most people who are doing that master's it's because they actually want to use it in their mm-hmm. career whereas I mean I studied biology at uni I knew I didn't want to go work in a lab after uni I knew that I was going to go do something else but I wanted a cool degree and actually looking back I question should I have done something a little bit more vocational or at least that would have helped me a bit more fundamentally in terms of exactly like the sector I wanted to go in but I mean at the time I had no idea so I just went for the core and it is so hard to know at 18 it sounds like you had quite a strong view on maybe where you wanted to go or not I no, hearing you say that I completely agree I it's it was so difficult to know and I think I I've pieced it all together now, looking back in mm-hmm. retrospect and, and being like, oh, in hindsight, yeah, it did all kind of fit. But no, honestly, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I, I, I did geology because I wanted to be outside and I liked the environment. And then I got the, the job after university because really it was one of the, it was the first job I really applied to properly that wasn't a grad scheme because mm. got there really hard to get onto. So um you know most people don't get on on them so yeah and then I mean one one point on that is that I applied to the EY grad scheme I think yeah it was when I was at undergrad and I I didn't Mm. get on because the the aptitude tests that they make you do are really really tough and um I'm not someone who can do semi-complicated maths under pressure so <laughs> the, the, when they make you do however many questions it is in six minutes it's ext- I find it extremely stressful um but that was not that never put me off now kind of uh, applying and then and being there now uh, so I think it just goes to show that yeah you can you can come come full circle with uh, with that sort of thing and yeah, yeah. so how do you, I mean I think I mean we're in our 20s so we haven't you know nowhere near the end of our careers yet but in terms of changing role I mean graduate schemes and I talked about this in my first series but they are so intense and Mm. I mean job applications afterwards can be too but and I know they need to restrict the number of applications and interviews Mm. for the roles but how did you find that recruitment process compared to your you know your most recent one? It's that's such a good question because I really despaired at the grad scheme process. Uh, I hated the fact that it was, you were very much just treated like a number and you kind of like cattle moving through through the different (laughs) stages (laughs) or not through as it usually is for most people. And it's so disheartening. Mm. Um, Most, everyone I know has been rejected from grad schemes regardless of how successful or how intelligent they are. they you know got rejected from them and I think it's it's a difficult thing to go through when if you um 
you know, if you're at university, you've, you've obviously achieved a lot. You've done well in your, your um, studies at school and, and you've mm. got in. And, and for, a, for a lot of people that I went to university with, they were extremely intelligent. So things came very easy mm. to them. And so getting, and, and this is me included. So getting rejected from the, the grad mm. schemes is like a hard pill to swallow. Um, mm. But as you say, it's, they, they use those aptitude tests and, and the assessment centers as kind of a gating mechanism. And mm. it's, it's very much to sh- sift out people because they just get too many applications. And yeah, I think if you, if you make, yeah. exactly. And if you make mm. it onto one, then that's fantastic. But it's not the end of the world if you don't. Mm. You can really find your, your way in the world and in, in your career by working for smaller companies. And there's pros and cons to both. So the, the grad schemes are usually for either, you know, the big four consultancies or industries and, mm. and engineering and that sort of thing, or any of the large firms. Yeah. Um, and they bring with them loads of benefits, but they're also, there are negatives too. And, and so the same can be said for small companies. Mm going back to your question the difference in recruitment process it yeah it's, it's bizarre the how, how different it is once you've done a master's and once you have some subject matter expertise mm-hmm. so largely my, my interview process at EY um, was testing my knowledge of the industry but it was much more conversational so it was mm. very much discussing as as we are now um the challenges that there are in the industry and, and in the space and discussing kind of work that I had done um on with other clients and on projects and actually mm. just seeing whether I was the right fit for the company but also whether the company was the right fit for me which mm-hmm. you don't get when you're a grad and I think part of that is because you don't have the experiences to draw on so mm-hmm. it's very hard for them to test your knowledge and understanding when you can't kind of relate to a certain example from a client or a specific project you've done. Mm, exactly. And you don't have the detail to go into in the examples. You may have done something, but it's probably quite broad. It's probably not as detailed. It's probably not got as many examples you can really bring out so the example I thought of you said working on those construction sites you had to be really resilient you had to work with challenging people and the first thing that came to my head was oh yeah that interview question when have you overcome a challenging (laughs) situation and I was like tick you've got that one (laughs) yeah that's why I always use it as an example I've practiced this one many times (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. so one other thing that you kind of told me about was that you did a climate change summer school climate change entrepreneurship when did you do that so that was um after I had finished at the environmental consultancy and before I did the master's at imperial okay so what does that what was that what did it involve um that was also fantastic (laughs) just to (laughs) say how much fun I had doing that as well so it was a six-week summer school funded by the EU which is probably not the case anymore sad times Mm. but um they it was an entrepreneurship summer school so the intention of the six weeks was that you would form a small group and and start up that had an idea um that would tackle climate change either down the adaptation or mitigation route Mm -hmm. so we spent two weeks in uh, Den Haag in the Netherlands at the start of the the program and those two weeks were all about developing ideas and thinking about sustainable business so we went and visited all sorts of different places we went to Rotterdam on a day trip uh, and visited kind of floating floating houses that were reusing old um, I think it was actually shipping containers that they'd put on stilts um, because there was a housing shortage there we visited like a sustainable um, there was like sustainable food places so there was one which was um, an aquaponics farm so (laughs) aquaponics I I mean it was a long time ago yeah so (laughs) yeah so you can have aquaponics and hydroponics um I can't remember the technicalities of it all but fundamentally it was closed system where they had fish and fish tanks on on the top floor Mm -hmm. and the water that they used from the fish tanks then was used to water plants um and then it was like a circular system so the feces of the fish would be the fertilizer for the plants and then 
the some of the plant matter would feed the fish and it, it, yeah it was a circular system. Like a nice, but, nice circle. Yes um, so lots of like circular economy stuff uh, which is basically thinking about the end of life of a product and how it can be completely circular so you can reuse that so it's on the reuse of the reduce reuse recycle triangle uh, so yeah that was all developing ideas and then we spent another I think it, I can't remember the, the time split, but we mm. spent some time in Finland and some time in Norway as well. Mm. And during that time, you had to develop a sustainable start of an idea. Uh, and my team, which I still keep in contact with today um, and who are, are fantastic people, where our idea was to basically make care homes more high tech in terms of en energy energy management. So mm. care homes are massively energy intensive because the patients that, and, and residents that live within them uh, require such high um, temperatures in, in the place because they're very cold, but also they just generally are not very sustainable in terms of their, their energy usage mm. with lights turning off and, and that sort of thing. So we saw it as a massive opportunity uh, in terms of the market for um, making that more sustainable so we were thinking about how you could just very very simple things of making automatic lights or changing mm -hmm. um, changing the, th the thermostat make it kind of smart so they would learn from when the resident was in the room um, to make sure the temperature was the right temperature for them when they were there and that sort of thing um needless to say we didn't win with this extremely un unsexy idea and that was the feedback that it wasn't sexy enough well, uh, however maybe. we it have very useful though <laughs> yeah exactly very practical we have since found out that, that there has been a startup that is doing exactly this so maybe right. we should have stuck with it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that sounds so good so how did you I guess did you hear about that from your course from imperial or was it something you were just looking for I think it was a recommendation of a friend, but I honestly can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, How did you, yeah. I guess, was it like an online application? Yeah, online application for it. It was called Climate Kick, so Climate KIC. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think they still might be running, but as I say, I'm not sure about the, the funding anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds incredible. I mean, what a great thing to talk about. And I mean, I asked you beforehand, I was like, because I knew from lacrosse, we'd both be on committees. But I did not realize all this other things you did. So you're a board member of a um, and a volunteer up in Leeds. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> another long story. Uh, a, a friend of mine that I, I went to school with uh, previously worked at EY. And when he was there, he set up, helped to set up. Uh, a branch of the community consulting teams that they have. So okay. EY um, helps students out in terms of getting work experience. And what they do is offer uh, consulting to local businesses in, in different areas that are all linked to universities. Mm. So the one that um, I am linked to and, and through my friend is, is Leeds Community Consulting. So okay. it's students at the University of Leeds that offer consultancy services to local businesses and it's all pro bono so they're not taking any fee or charging for that That's and great. as as a board member I basically just provide them with with help and guidance I, I only started it this year mm. um, so we've not had too much involvement yet but they were really interested in in, in thinking about how they could attract more diverse people uh, mm. to, to join the scheme and actually get involved with the consulting which I just thought was fantastic from a group of students that are doing something um kind of they're doing something good and for free anyway and yet they're mm. still concerned about ensuring that they have a, a diverse group of people actually on the program so based on kind of the, the ESG stuff and, and the work I've done kind of within the companies I've worked for on, on diversity they wanted to to get my help with that so hopefully we'll be making lots of difference to to the people that they attract that's so interesting so as a student you can I guess apply sign up and it's it is work experience and like you're working for free but that experience is going to be so valuable to them in the long run exactly and because they have the link with EY it means that they get kind of mentors and oh, um, yeah so I've also because I'm just one of those people that signs up to too many things uh, I have signed up to be a mentor for the Manchester mm. Metropolitan Uni one so what that means is that I will mentor students um, that are, are doing this program so that they can just get help and advice from someone that is a consultant day to day. 
That's so brilliant to just get some advice and ask those questions you wouldn't know where else to turn to. Mm-hmm. Someone will yeah. give you that time. That's it. Exactly. And work and also great for their networking as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. And well, thinking thinking of that and on that point, I have been like really, really impressed with so many individuals that are kind of still at university now and are so keen to just kind of reach out and ask for help um I've had based on these experiences that I've had whether it was from arabesque or from my master's um I think the master's course that I did must really encourage the students to to reach out to old grads and alumni but I'm inundated (laughs) with messages from them asking them for asking me for advice and honestly I couldn't encourage people to do it enough because if you hit the right person like me then I I you know I just I see that I never did that I wasn't brave enough to to reach out to those people so I just think oh my god they've been you know they, they, they've just reached out to someone that they don't know and asked for advice and help on their career um and it, yeah it's pretty ballsy of them to do that so mm-hmm. I think um yeah I think it's uh, fantastic that 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 generation of people um and, and the younger generation are doing that and using that to their advantage so building the network like we were saying earlier gosh yeah it's really good I mean I'm a bit I don't do lots of networking and I'm I think because I'm the client I do get a bit worried generally I'm client side and I get a bit worried about just being sold to all the time um yeah so I don't I'm I don't really go to networking but I can see the value in it and I think I probably should but so let's say you turn up at a networking event. Let's say that you've gone with the aim of getting advice and building your kind of network mm-hmm. with some more senior people. And then in a minute, we'll go the other way around. But mm-hmm. how do you approach that? The networking events that I find the most useful, I do actually go to are when it's related to a conference or a talk, okay. because I find that those bring similar minds into the same room. So if you're going to a a conference can be less so because there's a broad range of, of, of topics being presented. But if you go to a talk, whether it's at your university or hosted by some other company, then largely if the, there's people attending it, then they're going to you know want to talk about the topic that's just been discussed. And so it's a really like easy jumping off point uh, that I find. And I think the, the way I approach it is that it's people are actually interested in learning about what what you do um especially with sustainable finance it's a topic that people can kind of the sustainable finance bit not necessarily so but people are really keen to talk about all these topics Mm. so if you you know if you're passionate about what you're talking about it it obviously probably might not be sustainable finance but if you're going to a networking event and you speak passionately about what you are doing then people are genuinely genuinely interested to listen and they wouldn't be there if they weren't so yeah just being being able to be precise and concise about what you do but you know talk about it passionately so that people Mm. want to ask questions yeah and want to listen to you and then Mm -hmm. I guess vice versa if do you ever feel like let's say you were going to a networking event and there were lots of grad like undergraduates mm. doing their masters and you're almost there as someone that they want to be doing like doing something that they want mm. to be doing in the future do you ever feel nervous about that or are you just there to be like well they can ask me questions I'll share what I know or do you feel very casual about it or do you get kind of nervous as well with the responsibility yeah, I, I always get a bit nervous because I feel like a lot of the time people are really like hoping that you can in some way give them some sort of in. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, I, I feel, yeah, I feel pretty comfortable talking about it. And I guess the only experience I can speak to is my own. So if that is helpful for someone, then I'm always happy and willing to share all of my experiences that I've had throughout my whole career. Because mm-hmm. I think if, if, it's it's the only way that other people can avoid the mistakes that I've made but also learn from the things I've learned from so so that's I think that's a really nice way to put it is that this is my experience I can tell you if you get value from it great if you don't that's okay as well so you're not putting all that pressure on yourself I think yeah exactly I'm not going to give you the number one piece of advice you need to be great in your career actually they can take what they might want to from it and maybe it'll be something they can take from it later on even yeah well exactly because 
uh, as we've both said, neither of us had like, I, and you hear this, I, I hate to sound like um, an old record, but I, I used to hear it when I was a student, like that people have these fa like fantastic careers, they move from job to job and they end up being in this incredible position and everyone's mm -hmm. like, oh, how did you get there? And they're like, oh, I just went with the wind and followed, <laughs> followed my heart or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it is kind of true. You can't, you can't plan things out too much because um, as, as we all know, as has happened, like something like COVID can throw such a spanner in the works for so many careers and jobs. So you just have to, you, you do just have to go with it. And there's, there's fundamental things that you need to stay true to and, and, and that sort of thing. But beyond that, mm. just have the confidence and don't stress about it too much. Yeah. Uh, that sounds good. I think very good advice. I could actually like talk to you for hours, but I won't use up all of your Saturday afternoon. So <laughs> as I end every episode, I've got four questions. So okay. oh, I might be repeating some of what you've said already and that's fine. Um, but the first one is what has been the best thing as part of your career? And that could be really broad. It could be very specific, a specific project maybe that you worked on, mm -hmm. completely up to you, but what would you say has been the best thing so far? Best part of my career by far was being able to spend three months over in the US in Boston. Mm. Uh, so when I was at Arabesque, I went over there to cover one of my colleagues for maternity leave. Um, so I, I wanted to go over anyway. My partner was moving to New York. So I just kind of jumped on the opportunity and went out there. And I can't say how like good it was for my own confidence, but also just for to get experience working in a different country mm. so there are such different ways of working in the US to the UK like obviously there's no language barrier or anything like that mm. but just the culture is different and so by doing that and going working over there and understanding clients it, it just brought me so many valuable experiences that I can take mm. further into my career and um, I mean had COVID not happened I would still be there so <laughs> hopefully going back but um, yeah so that's definitely the do you have any examples of, you know, those cultural differences? Oh, I, I want to be careful not to stereotype, mm. but stereotypes do exist for a reason. I found <laughs> that um, in the US, people were, in, this is specific to, to finance, mm. uh, the clients that I spoke to in the US were much more approachable and easy to talk to than oh, uh, clients okay. in the UK. Yeah, and um they yeah it just it was I felt really confident walking into a meeting room and sitting down at a table of uh people that worked, worked in finance uh, for a large asset manager and I had no no problem with it whereas in the UK I would find that really daunting and perhaps it was because I had an English accent and <laughs> Again, stereotypes. American, you know, it is always brought up that you're the, the English Bring out your in the room. accent, and then yeah. they're just swooning all over. Well, yeah, um, exactly. Think, um. that's, that's so interesting. I think, yeah, I actually didn't think you were going to say. I thought it, you were going to say a bit more about maybe the culture is because my impression is it's work, work, work. Maybe it's just like a New York culture. I don't know, but it's like work um, and then sleep and play and burn out. <laughs> Or try not to burn out yeah is it like that or I mean maybe it just depends firm by firm and sector by sector but I don't know if it was very different. definitely in New York it's definitely it is like that to some extent mm. but uh because I was based in Boston it's a little bit more more sleepy um but I do think that that culture is also quite uh prevalent in in the UK as well in, in finance mm. okay. um yeah. so it's yeah that the main difference I saw was, was the friendliness. Well, that's very nice. I can see why you wanted to stay for longer. Yeah. Who knows what the future will hold, especially, I mean, I guess like your boyfriend, he's American, right? So he's, mm -hmm. we might end up there, you might end up there together or vice versa. But that's really interesting, I think. I love, I mean, of course, I latched onto the cultural differences as someone who studies and works in consumer behavior. But mm -hmm. it sounds like a really valuable experience. I can't believe we actually hadn't even spoken about it up until now. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so Not about that bit. Yeah, just just forgot about those three months abroad. I guess COVID's given us a lot more to think about. But then conversely, what has been the worst thing to date? I think the best the best way to sum up the worst thing is imposter syndrome okay definitely 
like I have massively faced that both and still do face that when when I was at Arabesque and then now at EY I think it's something that is it's such a challenge for so many young people in their career um, and not feeling like you're good enough not feeling like you know enough about the topic and especially as a consultant because you're meant to be advising people uh, <laughs> on these topics and you just think well who am I to tell you <laughs> what to do but um, it's something that I think kind of yeah it, it, it will hopefully go with time um, but I also have found that echoed with with my friends and colleagues as well that are similar mm. age to me so um, it, there's a massive um, massive issue around imposter syndrome yeah I mean, I have a definite, when I'm in a meeting with senior people, I'm like, they're the senior. But one thing I have learned over the last years is that they, I'm there because they want to hear from me. I'm there <laughs> because I actually have the time and it's my job to look specifically at this area. They're managing everything else and they just need to hear from me, my expertise in that area. And yeah, not every time I feel that, you know, I'm amazing. I'm the expert. You don't feel that every time, but it's nice I'm definitely finding it more and more and I think that's a really good thing to remember is that you know for example you've done a master's in this you have worked in this for a number of years this is what you do day in day out and also with various clients which is valuable to companies because they're like okay well what are you doing with other people as well and that I mean I know that there's like client confidentiality but there are things which you can share and that's valuable and I think it's remembering individually that you have that value and you're there because they want to know what you've got to say. Yeah, exactly. I think all of those things um, and and the reason that it's often you do end up feeling like you have uh, imposter, you end up feeling like you're not worthy of being in the room is because you don't always have the answer, but it's realizing that either the answer doesn't exist or it's okay to not to not have the answer um, and it's okay to seek advice from other people and, and come back with with an answer we- yeah and to be honest they're asking the questions so they don't know the answer either <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so that's good but it, of course in the moment it is hard to remember that um yeah it's definitely true so and I mean I guess maybe this follows on but what advice would you give to somebody who maybe wants to do what you've done or get into the fields that you've done or maybe they're in the broader sector and actually they know mm-hmm. it's not quite right and want to pivot what advice would you give to them the best advice is to find find a role or a company where you can grow and learn mm-hmm. um and so whether it's you wanting if you want to pivot into this space if you have sustainable finance touches so many different areas of, of business and finance and so if you have any sort of background in sustainability in any background in finance or in business there is a place for you within within the space and within the market mm-hmm. um, and so understanding something really specifically so for me when I worked at Arabesque I, I worked on ESG data so that was just the data the corporate disclosures um of of companies relating to es and g so Mm -hmm. that was the only thing that i did and it was very niche and very specific but that meant that i kind of had that that core knowledge set so Mm -hmm. if you're you're pivoting into the space just finding something that can be your niche and can be your core bit of knowledge and then expanding from that and growing from that because if it has broad applications to the rest of the sector then you'll find your way way through the maze I think that's good advice kind of knowing your I guess individuality but knowing your niche and mm-hmm. I mean what's been really clear from chatting to you is that you're pa- you're passionate you're so passionate about what you do you're extremely knowledgeable and the different experiences you talk about them in a way like oh I remember I love this I love doing this it was another great mm-hmm. thing and that's you know that's what everyone wants in their career they want it to be great but sometimes it's hard to find it but yeah so looking ahead to the future, what would you like to happen or what are you trying to make happen? Oh, this is my least favourite question. <laughs> I'm not asking for your five-year plan, don't worry. <laughs> By the way, well, the future could be the next six months. It doesn't have to be 10 years. So. 
mean, my number one goal was to get a dog, and I just got one like a week okay. ago. So I feel well, like I've achieved. Talking career wise, but that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> she's very. So she's very cute. I, I think. So even though I yeah I am really really passionate about sustainability and about climate change and everything that goes with that, the thing I really care about is is like people and working mm. with good people and helping to build up other other people and it's why I'm always happy to talk about my career and, and speak to mm. people about um, their career because I just think um, that human connections I, I'm a people person I like interacting with people so I think the main thing that I would want to see over the next six months three five years whatever it might be is just to play more of a role um, as, a, as a team leader and as part of a team um, we both were, were in lacrosse teams and always wanted to be on committees and that sort of thing yeah. always wanted to lead so I think we're, we're both the same in that respect mm-hmm. um, so I'd like to be able to you know be that person that people can can look up to and and can learn from and yeah I'd say that's that's it I think that's brilliant I mean what a name and I think you're probably already doing so much of that anyway and people will look to you whether it's you know reverse mentoring mentoring and with your work with EY community consulting and doing all of your work there it's clear that you're having an impact and I guess that must be really fulfilling as well and hopefully you can continue to do more of that as well yeah fingers crossed that's the aim (laughs) anyway well thank you so much I've actually loved this and I'm I mean I could actually talk to you for hours and hours about sustainability and the social impact that we can all have so thank you so much for talking to me and for being on help I'm in my 20s thank you Alex thanks so much Georgie Thank you so much to Alex for being part of Health I'm in my 20s. I absolutely love talking to her. Cannot wait to see her again so I can talk even more about her career and what we can maybe do for our planet. If you want to hear more episodes, please listen to series one or the rest of series two, which is continuing through November and December 2021. If you'd like to subscribe, rate, share with your friends, that would be really appreciated. And you can always follow me on Instagram at help in my 20s. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time.